Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is our last show of the week, or certainly on the Friday afternoon uh, on August the 4th, 2023. And last shows on the week of a Friday means that was the week with my old friend Keith Tier. Hey. Uh, it's August, so on the West Coast, at least, we are barbecuing. We're sitting outside. But Keith has another kind of barbecuing on his mind this week. It's the bonfires of the unicorns, Keith. Have you, are you barbecuing unicorns or are they just on fire down in Palo Alto? Well, I've got to get credit to Kate Clark from the information for the concept. She, uh, she wrote an article this week saying there was a fire sale of unicorns. Uh, that was following on the footsteps of a company called Hopin which is a, a British company that had achieved a valuation of seven and a half billion dollars uh, during the COVID period, was sold in parts for a song this week. And, um, you know, investors lost a lot of money. So she focused on that, added in that a couple of other companies had run out of money and were doing fire sales. And basically talked about what we've talked about a little bit on the show already, which is that this, this, the system as it has been the last three years is blocked. And to be unblocked it is going to create a lot of ugliness. And, and the ugliness has begun, hence Bonfire of the Unicorns. Is that so, uglier than your AI art, Keith? Yeah, it's not the best, uh, the best mid-journey. Uh, I, I told it to put a unicorn in a city park uh, uh, with fire coming from the ground. And it wasn't very good. So then I said, well, what? Try and make it 100 unicorns. So then it did that. And that's because there are probably... Oh, unicorns all fleeing from the fire. I mean, I know it's easy in retrospect, this stuff, but... And I'm not sure if I predicted it exactly, but wasn't it kind of obvious with companies like Hopin, as you said, it was a virtual events company during COVID, um, worth seven and a half billion dollars. Uh, Keith, in your in your excellent editorial this week, you refer to Clark comparing Hopin to Clubhouse. I mean, I, I'm not sure about Hopin, but we certainly were very skeptical of Clubhouse. This stuff is so obvious, and yet people continue to lose ridiculous amounts of money on it. Why and how? Well, I think it, it's the dilemma of innovation is exciting. So Clubhouse, when it first came along, did do something new, which was real-time audience participation audio, a little bit like with phone and shows on the radio. Yes, so it wasn't very different. It wasn't very different, but it was the first time you could do it digitally. And initially, at least, a lot of people did it. And, and the same with Hopin. Hopin was, okay, well, you can't go to a conference because of COVID, but we can do an online version of a conference. And it was it was a little bit better than, you know, what you could do on Zoom, for example. And so, so the innovation was real. What wasn't real was the valuations because what happens with innovation is money flocks to the winner in a category before the category is proven to be real. And, and that 
in some ways is a very human thing. I don't think you could ever stop it. And so the valuations got driven up very fast, super fast in the case of Hopin. And, and, and I, in the editorial, I put a, a, a table showing the dates and when they raised money and what the valuation was. And uh, I've been through it myself with real names. I raised um, three rounds of financing in one year. The year was 1998. And we went from raising 5 million to raising 70 million uh, per round. Um, because investors wanted to invest, and it's almost impossible to say no when that happens to you because you want to build a big company. So the valuation goes up, and then a bubble bursts, and the valuation isn't really... So, so going back to hoping, or hopping, or whatever it's called, I mean, there is a market for virtual events. There was before COVID. There certainly was one during COVID, and there is one now. Why couldn't the people at hopping have negotiated that, understood that, and um, built themselves to, I mean, in an odd way, it's not surviving the drought, it's surviving the cornucopia, it's surviving the free money. Well, if you really get into the weeds, what Hopin did wrong, and a lot of companies do wrong, is just because you raise a lot of money doesn't mean you need to spend it. So if you have a balanced view of your opportunity over, let's say, 10 years, raising a lot of money doesn't need to be a problem. But it is a problem if you spend it and need to raise more. Because once the valuation era has shifted to a more reasonable valuation era, and the new valuation of Hopin, by the way, where they retain a company called StreamYard that they acquired that's not unlike the, the, that's the software we're using now on our show, is 400 million. So from seven and a half billion to 400 million. And I think they sold assets to Ring Central for about three, 400 million as well. So let's say 800 million. So it's 10% of its former value. That wouldn't be a problem if they'd preserved capital, they had a big bank account, and they could afford to take time to grow into a valuation. But because they spent the money super fast, believing that more would come then they're stopped because no one's going to invest on top of a seven and a half billion dollar valuation. Oh, yeah, the, but the investors, if if they kept all the investment money, the investors will say, "Why are you keeping our money?" The whole point of putting it in was for you to get mar grab market share or control yeah. the market or do this or that. Yeah, but when you raise a billion dollars, you can probably do that with two hundred million and keep eight hundred million in the bank. You don't have to spend a billion dollars. How do you short these markets, Keith? If you saw this stuff going on, and maybe now it's happening with AI. It certainly happened a couple of years ago with crypto yeah. um, and with these other virtual online platforms during, um, during COVID. I mean, even PayPal, which is a credible company, I mean, its stock is 60 and COVID times it was up to 300. How do you short that? How can a private investor short it? Well, the way that it works in private markets is you uh, people who have the inclination to short become secondary buyers after the problems have developed. So like this week, I didn't put it in the newsletter, but last week we talked about Michael Moritz leaving Sequoia. Mm. Well, this week it was announced that he's teamed up with some other people through Sequoia Heritage to create a fund for buying distressed assets. 
So the, the secondary buyers basically become people who pick up distressed assets that still have life in them. Once the valuation is... Yeah, but Moritz has a lot of money. He knows what he's doing. But for ordinary people, for myself, if I saw this ridiculous explosion of tech investments in an area which I was convinced was bound to fail, then how can you you bet against it? The only way to bet against it is to bet in public markets against stocks that mirror the ecosystem, like uh, the ARK Invest Fund that Kathy Woods runs. Right. Invests in a lot of um, unicorns. Isn't this a startup idea, Keith? Couldn't, couldn't you do something like this? If I mean, you've always wanted to, you always talked about democratizing the market. So you've always wanted ordinary investors, retail investors to be able to have access to startups. Which, why shouldn't they also have access to betting against startups? Yeah, I don't have the DNA for that, Andrew. But you, you, I'm not you, saying you do, but somebody else. So yeah, well, that already is there. Really, there are various hedge funds that you can invest in. You have to be a, an accredited investor, but there's various hedge funds that specialize in shorting, and and they short public markets because you can't short private markets. Um, and then there's others which are what you might think of as bottom feeders. So. Dave McClure, who used to yeah. be a founder of 500 startups, now has a fund that buys assets from LPs in funds, which, which where the assets have been devalued, and he buys them for pennies on the dollar. So there, there is a whole ecosystem around that, and you can invest in Dave McClure's fund. So in, in terms of the funds, another thing you mentioned in the editorial this week is that Union Square Ventures one of the smartest and most successful venture funds has marked down its assets by 26%. How well are leading venture capital firms dealing with this? They're mostly delaying the inevitable. So Union Square actually got a bit of flack for doing this. Why? Uh, It's considered too much of a write-down by some people. In fact, the opposite is probably true. It's probably too little. Uh, But the fact they did it at all uh, is a leading indicator of what's likely to come. Again, hence the bonfire of the unicorn's title. We're beginning to see re-evaluations of the asset value of portfolios. And I I think that's a process. It's going to take a year or so because audits have to happen. And when audits happen, you're going to have to justify the valuation you're holding an asset at on your books, and you won't be able to. And, and I would say 50 to 60% write-downs are going to be more normal than 26% write-downs when that and happens. What does that actually mean? So if a well, USB well, so, marks down by 50 to 60%, it's not going to jeopardize its business. It's just jeopardizing that particular fund? It's the fund. So let, let's say you invested $100 million in 10 companies. And none of those companies have done the next round yet. And meanwhile, the market has shifted in terms of valuation norms. That hundred million, which is your 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 investors' money that you've put to work, may now be only worth forty million. So you've turned a hundred million into forty million. That's quite an achievement, right? Right, and you have to report on that, and 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 then it takes a long time to get it back. 
um, if you ever do. Another so, piece that you highlight this week is Sequoia uh, cuts its crypto fund by 66%. That's not actually cutting the valuation. It's the actual fund, right? Yes. it's Sequoia has this structure, which we've discussed before on the show, which there's a top-level pool of money. And they're allowed to allocate from that pool into various initiatives, one of which is crypto. So this is them deciding to allocate less of their money to crypto in the aftermath of the FTX fiasco. And, and the you know two of the partners running the crypto fund left. We talked about that last week. So they're basically... Was that a euphemism for being fired, do you think, given all their missteps? I think in venture, you don't really get fired because you have some economics in the fund, but you don't, it's, it's close. You're not invited back. You're not. Yeah, exactly. Um, and one of the consequences is you haven't put this piece in because I think I must have forgotten to send you the link, but I think it's a really interesting piece in the FT this week by Rusher Sharma suggesting that the, the title is What's Wrong with Tech Giants Riding the AI Wave? The AI Wave, not Wave. Um, and the premise is that because of this collapse or certainly crisis of early stage funding, all the innovation now is coming from big companies. And the, the big company news, as you know, is actually pretty good. Meta's numbers weren't bad. Their stock is strong. The same with Alphabet. What do you think this is all going to mean when all the innovation comes from? Meta and Facebook, and even OpenAI, which is one of the few successful AI startups, is essentially funded by Microsoft. Yeah. Well, firstly, it's accurate to say that that's what's happening. Um, The costs of entry into AI are so high, especially the large language models that uh, are dominating today, that unless you're a big company with a big bank account, you can't even begin to do it. OpenAI was underwritten by Microsoft, which is why they could do it. And Microsoft obviously has an ownership stake in OpenAI. Um, there are very few others in the same league. I mean, we have, there's four or five other large AI investments that have happened. But probably the, the biggest uh, signal to how that might change is there's a company got funded this week called Together.ai. And Together.ai just did a seed round. So you heard it here first. Um, And it's a platform for third parties to be able to carry out the kinds of uh, training that the big companies can do. And it's all open source. Um, It's a pay-as-you-go service, so it's not free. But it does indicate that there may be a democratization of AI capability coming bottoms up through the equivalent of SaaS companies uh, in in the AI space. Uh, So I'd say uh, together.ai is one to keep an eye on. Um, And then another headline is uh, broadly venture capital investments down 54%. And I assume all that investment is going into AI, into companies like Together. Not all of it, but a lot. But it it tends to be going in large checks into a small number of companies. There are thousands of AI startups, literally thousands. 
Uh, I would think there's tens of thousands, actually. I mean, anyone who's doing a tech startup is by definition an AI startup, isn't it? Not all of them. No, there's lots of, there's a lot of deep science startups right now. Mm. We're going to get to deep science later in the show with your startup of the week. One of your headlines, which is interesting, which wasn't surprising again, is that you think, or one of your, one of the articles believes that AI will have the biggest impact in healthcare. Um, that's a no-brainer, and I assume that a lot of the money is going there. And a lot of money will go there. Uh, so far, not as much as is going to. That's an Andreessen Horowitz article, um, and so they're, they're they're selling their own book in a way when they say that. But obviously, um, human anatomy at the deep level is beginning to be understood, and it. There's no reason to believe AI won't accelerate that understanding. We already know that DeepMind, for example, was able to model all the proteins in the human body, um, which scientists hadn't been able to do. And from the retail point of view, it's a no-brainer. I mean, I've had lots of keen-on shows about how um, doctors and nurses will be able to scale themselves in terms of dealing with medical issues which currently are not very well dealt with on the retail front in terms of patients and doctors yeah the real breakthrough comes when robotics meets ai which isn't yet but we already have keyhole surgery and we already have keyhole surgery where a surgeon can control a machine at a very high level of accuracy down to millimeters um, in the body so robotics is going to be better at that than a human once the procedures are understood enough to replicate. So I I, I think you do end up in this robotics meets software meets human need. Um, But the most exciting stuff, I think, is stuff I don't really understand. I'm not enough of a biologist to understand it. I thought you answered everything, Keith. Yeah, I definitely don't understand DNA and I don't understand stem cells and I don't understand, uh, you know, creating uh, viruses that attack cancer yeah, cells. Right, yeah. uh, but all of, all of that human engineering is, is going to accelerate massively. And in terms of the broader impact of AI, as these big companies, the Metas, the NVIDIAs, the Alphabets, the... Amazons, the Apples of the world, control the platform, will it mean that there'll be opportunities for startup entrepreneurs in the verticals like healthcare or insurance or finance or entertainment? Yeah, the word I would use to describe all of that is unbundling. Um, It's a cyclical thing in tech. Um, The first thing that happens is some, some mega breakthrough happens. Um, uh, large language models is is a good example. But if you go way back in time, the internet itself and the idea of a portal was, you know, there was only, there was one portal, it was called Yahoo. And then there was two, Netscape. And then there were three, Excite and um, InfoSeq and others. And then there was Google um, and and AltaVista. And before that, it was AOL. Before that, well, now if you roll the clock forward, what happened? Today we have specialist sites for very specific interests. Go to YouTube, 
we don't have a video site anymore. We have millions of video sites, each one dedicated to niche subjects. So unbundling is the process of technology being applied more and more specifically to human needs or wants. And I, I think with AI, you're going to see that in every, every domain. Anything that humans demand, someone will build AI to supply the demand. And, and um, that's unbundling. So the big opportunities for startups is to pick a space, let's say real estate, real estate sales, homes. You know, what will be the AI impact on uh, Redfin or Zillow? Somebody's going to build something that's way better at valuation, at uh, selection, at uh, access uh, to purchases, uh, and it's going to revolutionize something that already exists by making it better. That that's unbundling, and I think that is inevitable. Is that what you, what one of your articles this week describes as historic futurism? Um, you, the, by Kyle Harrison, subtitled "Using Science Fiction to Invent the Future." Can we learn about what will happen from the past? Is it almost inevitable, Keith, with your Marxist background? Yeah, this well, a kind of historical determinism working itself out. Well, there's no inevitability in history, that's for sure. So, in that sense, the historical determinists are wrong. But technology does open up the possibility for human investigation and decision to focus on something. And historical futurism is my first. I can't remember if I made it the first essay, but it's. Um, one of yeah, my I think it's, it's the first essay. It's really good. And, and what it really says is that you, you, you can choose the future you want based on the available tools in the present. You can already imagine and create the, what comes next. So that, that to me, is uh, true. Um, I've always believed that the, the entrepreneur really is a believer in something that doesn't exist but can the science fiction is the believer in something that doesn't exist and can't. So the difference between science fiction and entrepreneurialism is whether it can exist. Uber didn't exist, but it already could. And Travis Kalanick figured that out. Same with Airbnb. It, it didn't exist, but it could. And, and so historical futurism is reminding yourself that the present is only a canvas and it's your job to pick the tools from the present to create something that doesn't exist but can. And if it exists, people want. Yeah, you got to be audacious. I mean, at the time when Airbnb and Uber launched, they, all, they both seemed entirely absurd. And now they seem completely natural. Another, your, your broadcast of the week is from the great Jeanne Thier, <laughs> better, your better half, Keith. What's Jeanne been talking about? Assessing venture capital. I assume that all your wisdom about this collapse of VC uh, is is taken from Jeanet because she's well, a crunch base and she's smarter than you anyway. Yeah. Well, I think Kate Clark also gets a call out, but uh, Je, Je, this, this podcast was done by Standard & Poor's. Uh, we all have heard of the S&P 500, that's Standard & Poor's. And um, they asked her to talk about what's going on in venture capital. And she does a great job. It's had a lot of plaudits on, on X, formerly known as Twitter. 
And um, she pointed it out to me only this morning, by the way. So I included it at the last minute. And confession, I actually haven't listened to it. Oh, my God. You Did you tell Janae that? Well, she knows because she only just told me about it. Well, you'll have to do that this afternoon. A couple of other pieces of news before we get to um, our startup of the week. Interesting piece on VW investing in China, 5% in Xpeng. Has the the China crisis uh, passed? I mean, the headlines in the New York Times today are Biden and the Chinese are talking to one another again. Have we got over that hysteria that was earlier this summer about TikTok and the Chinese and all the rest of it? It's quietened down quite a bit, hasn't it? And diplomacy... Which is good. Yeah. Um, And diplomacy suggests that's the trend. Uh, It it did... uh, The Economist announced this week that China is now the world's largest exporter of cars, which it wasn't up until now. But in the same uh, copy of The Economist, they also wrote that it's going to take at least two more decades before China is the largest economy in the world, eclipsing the U.S., so there's balance and nuance there. Volkswagen taking a 5% stake, it, it, there's a couple of parts to that. The first is uh, the Chinese electric vehicle industry is super innovative and the cars are very high-end luxury cars. The Chinese buyers demand luxury. So they, they, did, they don't buy Teslas that much because the internal of a Tesla is too Spartan for them. Um, so VW is... Well, I would, as a Tesla owner, in fact, we're a two Tesla family, I would describe it as minimalist rather than It's minimalist. And and a Chinese buyer wants soft, comfy chairs and, you know, they want luxury. The the biggest English word used in China is VIP. And and so there's this kind of desire for higher end. And so that was always a challenge to Tesla. One of my friends is Veronica Wu. She... She used to run Tesla in China, and she used to tell me that her hardest job was selling to high net worth individuals there because they wanted something that was more like a Mercedes or an Audi or a BMW level of luxury. Um, and the fact that Tesla was so far ahead technologically in EVs didn't didn't wasn't enough. Well, now Xpeng and uh, Neo and Li and BYD, there's four huge ones in China are all super competitive. And VW wants a piece of the Chinese market. It also wants to take technology from China into the VW and Audi franchise, um, Mm. the same company, uh, outside of China. So I I think... I mean, that's doubly good news. Good news on any any investments, real investments in in EVs, plus the global network uh, is a good thing. And the pushback against economic nationalism or autarky for, uh, finally or second finally our startup of the week Keith I have to admit I didn't even not only have I not heard of this company I didn't even understand what this industry is what is LK99 the DIY race to replicate LK99 so uh, LK99 is a code word for a South Korean effort to create what's known as a superconductor that can operate in in normal temperature. Yeah, as if it was room temperature. So, yeah. so what is a superconductor? Uh, when electricity runs through wires, uh, there's friction. 
copper is the usually the chosen wire to run through. Silver is, um, you know, a better conductor than copper, but copper is cheap enough to to use. But it creates friction, which is why you get heat uh, in systems that use copper, because friction creates heat. A superconductor is something that allows electricity to pass with no friction, literally zero friction. So there's no heat and no loss. Um, and, and it's been, and by the way, it can pass through the air. It doesn't need a wire. Uh, it can pass through thin air. So electricity can be moved around in space. And this has been something everyone's been chasing for a long, long time. I remember there was a TechCrunch Disrupt company that claimed to have done it and then it turned out they hadn't. So last week, uh, two papers were published by the South Korean PhDs saying they'd figured it out. And uh, I think it was two or three weeks ago. And now everyone's gotten very preoccupied with firstly um, doubting whether they really did do it. But if they did it, trying to replicate it, they published the papers so anyone can replicate it. If it's real, it means things like nuclear fusion and close to free power becomes possible and much cheaper, smaller components become possible, like transistors um, uh, give off heat. If, if superconducting was real, it's as profound as the transistor in terms of revolutionizing um, electricity and what it can be put to work doing. So is this a start? I mean, you call it a startup of the week. This is, this is hardcore science. This is not a startup. It's hardcore science, and it's still contested. It isn't yet uh, science. Yeah, I, mean, this is, I think this, uh, Keith, this is an August choice. This is, uh, mm, I don't think it, we're going to allow it. <laughs> it's it's well, not a startup. What is this? What's a startup? A startup well, requires a couple of people in a, in a garage to think something up. This is a serious scientific endeavor. Yeah, but it is just a few people in a garage that did it. Oh, well, maybe then we're allowed, but even if it's a garage in Korea. I don't know if they have... Do they have garages in Korea? Of course they do. They have electric cars. They've got everything. They've got in Korea. Bathrooms, toilets. It's amazing. Cars. Yeah. Well, well done, Korea. You're the startup of the week. Finally, and this is a very personal choice, Keith. Tweet of the week from uh, John Collison at... Um, uh, right. uh, uh at um, at uh, Collision, at Stripe, co-founder of Stripe, announced that Stefan Tomlinson was going to join Stripe as its chief financial officer. By the way, you should change the name from Tweet of the Week to X of the Week. I mean, Tweet is, is an old-fashioned word now. You're right. You're right. I, you, you actually said that last week, and I agreed with you, and I forgot to do it again. Yeah. Well, anyway, what's the big deal about this? It's just another executive joining another overvalued startup well there's two dimensions to this one is uh i know stefan he's a he's a family friend uh, our kids were in school in the same era so we've known him for a long time uh but so that would already want me to uh to put it there but that actually isn't the reason i put it there the reason i put it there is stefan is a a bit of a specialist He's, if you look at his uh, LinkedIn, you'll see he has a history of joining companies just before they... Whoa. Like, 
uh, he, he joined Palo Networks, where another friend of mine, Mark McLaughlin, was the CEO. And that company went public and did very well. And, and he's done it a few times. So I would speculate, and I don't know this because I haven't spoken to Stefan, that Stripe is very close, by close 12, 20 months away from an IPO. And Stefan's job is to get them ready to, to do that um, because that's what he does. He's, is he's a, Stripe about as blue chip as, I don't know, is, I don't know if you'd call it a, a late stage startup as it's possible to be? It is, yeah. It's very late stage. It's almost as late as Uber was when it went public or Facebook for that matter. And could it trigger some sort of new startup uh, IPO market? Well, it'll be an attractive company to invest in anyway, as long as its valuation, uh, you know, aligns with current valuation models. Um, you know, the mistake that most IPOs make is they, they overvalue, some of them undervalue. Uh, you just got to get it right, which is why Stefan is there. That's probably one of his jobs to get the valuation right, working with people like Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or whoever it is they end up working with. And, um, I, I think Stripe could go public tomorrow if it was ready, as long as the valuation is okay, because it's it's a high quality company. Um, um, by the time it does go public, the markets will have evolved from where they are today, and multiples of revenue that you can price your stock at may be better. That's possible, but I don't think that will be a key thought. Mo you know, most CEOs when you go public, I've done it a couple of times you don't really focus on the share price. You focus on raising money to execute the next phase of your company. That's really all you're doing. Any, have you got any bar barbecues coming up, Keith? Are you going to be barbecuing any unicorns this week in Palo Alto? I think they might not be very tasty. So the answer is I'll stick to the beef. Well, we will be back. Beef or unicorns or otherwise next week. I think we're going to broadcast on Thursday because I'm going to New York on Friday. Keith, have a great week. And be careful with your unicorns, everyone. They're a dying breed. <laughs>